0: This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Darius Rajali. He's a professor of political science at Reed College in Oregon and is one of the world's leading experts on torture. I spoke with him on May 15th, 2009 from the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in a private recording studio in Portland, Oregon. This interview is included in our program, The Long Shadow of Torture. Download the MP3 of that produced show at Speakingoffaith.org.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. And likewise, what's the weather like over there?
0: Uh, I don't know. It's kind of trying to become summery, but it's cold in the mornings. Um, oh. But the sun is shining, my flowers mm. are growing. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, what what season is it? Bulbs or is it uh, something I've else? I've got now?
0: tulips and ah, I did. I bought <laughs> it. I bought a new house last summer, and I'm. I don't know everything that's in my garden, but the person there who was there before me did a beautiful job in planting perennials. And, so.
1: <laughs> oh, I I understand that problem. I uh, well, problem gift, I guess. Right, yeah, and, it uh, is. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> when I bought my house, I bought it in the fall. I had no idea what was going to spring right. up. Right. I wasn't planning on Well, I moved
0: in in August, and a lot of things in Minnesota were already dead by then. So, mm-hmm. so
1: And then you're compelled to be a gardener. Exactly.
0: But I have a much better beginning. It's a more promising beginning than <laughs> if I had true. started That's from true. scratch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so. Yeah.
0: Well, t- um, I want you to say your name for me, just so I – Darius. Oh, and then how do you Darius say your last name?
1: Darius Rajali.
0: You do say Rajali. Okay.
1: I do. All right. I do.
0: Is that really the Iranian way? No, of course not. No. Wouldn't it be <laughs> the, the more Iranian... like Rejali or something like that? Right. The, uh-huh. the
1: full, my full name would be Dariush Rejali. All right.
0: Right, exactly. All right, but, I won't try that.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, – my mother gave me Janus face names so that they'd work in both cultures. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose a lot of people say Darius. Right. But uh, – but that's just the French pronunciation. British Indian, pronounce it terias. Okay. So.
0: Well, I, I think it's noble that you hung on to that pronunciation <laughs> all these years.
1: It was trained on to me in the schoolyard. There were so many other Dariuses. I had to be different.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: You can't. It's a very common name in Iran when I was growing up.
0: Okay. So. <laughs> well, um, do, do you know the show, um, My Suikian Faith?
1: I – you know, he, here's here's what happened. When your invitation came, uh-huh. I immediately spoke to a couple people and they were like, yeah, I listen to it every week. Uh-huh. And uh, so then they filled me in. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, I feel like – they said it's it's sort of like a NPR show but it's not an NPR show. It's uh, <laughs> sort of – I don't know. How would you describe it?
0: Uh, how would I describe it? Well, <laughs> yeah, I sure. think the title um, – it works against us a bit. I mean, we we call it public radio's program about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. The truth is, we're doing mm. big, deep, in depth discussion that you couldn't do anywhere but public radio. Right. Um, but we're having conversations that no one's having anywhere else, including on public radio. <laughs> so, right. Um, but um, I think I mean I think you are perfect. You're the you're the perfect. Um, you ha- w- what I'd like to say. Um, Is that I like to speak at this intersection of great, of big ideas and human experience of real life. And, you know, the fact that you bring all these experiences together in your person as well as this vast scholarly knowledge is really exciting to me. So um oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I hope
1: I can deliver. <laughs> it's 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 in there. It's yeah. pulling it out is sometimes complicated. All
0: right. Well I I'm pretty good at that. That's my job. And so and I think that um when Colleen wrote to you, you know what I keep as I watch this torture I don't even think there's much of a debate going on yet, whatever it is, this confrontation with reality. Um mm. I keep thinking of this great line of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel: "In a democracy, some are guilty while all are responsible." And mm. and that's the conversation um, I'd like to provide some fodder for. You know, what is the shared responsibility and our shared consequences? And and I think you know that. I don't know. Those are the yeah, questions I mean- you get asked.
1: I, I don't often get asked questions about that because, as you can imagine, most people are interested in the minute of, right. you, know, of, right. of you know, did Pelosi know? Does torture right. work? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the sort of grand questions of, I guess I would call it, I mean, for me, would be passive injustice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, we are all doing our job as citizens and, um, you know, how responsible can we be? Mm-hmm. And But I also kind of... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy yeah. to talk about okay. that. We can explore all that, sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, um, and I, I've done a lot of – I've read – I've read, been – I cannot say I have read every word of your book because oh. some of – it's hard to read. And, and because, it you is. know, I'm, I'm liberated by the fact that I don't want to get into some of that granular stuff. But, but um. I, have, I have spent time with your book and I've read a lot of other interviews you've given and pieces you've written. And I, I, here's what I want to say also. We're going to produce this a couple of weeks from now. Um, And also, I want to produce something that we might put on the air uh, next month and again next year because I don't think this subject is going to go away. So um, let's not be tied too much to what happened yesterday or what might happen tomorrow. I
1: was like, I, I'm in shock. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Well, you know what? So, so I mean, the photos, the question of whether the photos will be released. I, I mean, yeah. I think we can talk about the photos and what they might mean, but not necessarily uh, be too tied to the news cycle. So let's just try it. And, and we, you know, of course, we will end up talking about things that are happening yesterday or tomorrow, and that's all sure. right. But it may not make its way into the show, or we might produce the show and – edited a little bit different way a year from now so anyway
1: sure well i mean i mean basically many of the things that are happening today are just examples i mean right used for any number of situations right so right it's 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 not hard to to weave them together with mm-hmm. broader themes
0: okay so um yes
1: what i'm sorry we got oh. some uh, someone in here back off just about i need to back, back off there you go, right about there am i good there. All right. Okay. So I'm told. So I'm not going to move from this spot. And there's a cat in the room. Does the, does the cat there's really matter? There's a cat in the room. <laughs> there's a lovely Siamese cat in the room or some cross. Not even supposed to be does well, the cat there
0: know to be really quiet?
1: <laughs> no, the cat just left. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I have to say, that's a new one. We've never had a cat in the room. We've had all kinds of other things going on.
1: Really? Uh, yeah. All, all right.
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. All right, so let's start, and um, and again, we we do get to have a real conversation. Uh, we we will edit this down later on, so um, you can expound on things, and it doesn't even have to be linear. Right, we I, I
1: restart, if you I'm can restart, doing, but, but don't worry but, about
0: don't worry about if you. I mean, I can, we can, we can make you sound digital. We could all use digital editing in our life. So. All right, yes, um, sure. <laughs> you know. um what I want to say is uh oh yeah the, where I start with every interview, whether i'm interviewing a quantum physicist or a theologian or whatever is um, uh, I'd like to just hear, and I know something about this from your work but talk, talk to me about um, how you would describe the religious and spiritual background of your life of your childhood
1: uh well uh, i uh, was born in an iranian american family my mother's American um, Protestant background uh, and uh, my father's Iranian um, Shiite in uh, in background um, I guess I would say I, I, I grew up most of my life in uh, certain my teenage years in Iran and um, uh, at the age of seven um, my mother decided to send me to um, community school which was a former Presbyterian mission school and carried much of the Presbyterian ethos with it. So we went to chapel. But at the same time, I knew I was a Muslim. I kind of was um, part of going up as a child. It's like I realized I wasn't Christian. Hmm. Um, So – but yet I I absorbed all these sort of Protestant um, attitudes, I guess I would say, about, you know, um, I don't know – Work for sure, um, but I always—I mean—I think that so that's the, the
0: Calvinist it, side of you. The work—that's the Calvinist <laughs> side,
1: the the the, the 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 side that really can't, you know, has a sort of conscience that drives one to constantly um, push. All right. Um, the the Shiite side, I would say, is is a real sort of concern for for um, justice and mercy, and um, and you know that that's um, you know when I you know, when I think about sort of fundamental um, attitudes towards life, um, that's one thing that I associate pretty strongly with my my Muslim background, which Mm. is um, a sort of sense of the righteousness of things. Uh, My mother felt very strongly that I should um, start off with a strong religious foundation no matter what other decisions I made in life, Mm. um, just so that I could know the distinction between good and evil. Um, and as it turns out, you know, she sent my sister to a uh, Catholic school many years later. So it, she was rather agnostic about how we started just as long as we had that distinction firmly in our mind. Um, the other thing I, I should say as part of sort of my ethical raising background is that, you know, one of the things I particularly liked about my childhood was um, uh, my, my mother brought back from the um, – from Russia, um, old communist cartoons, which were wonderful because, you know, the communist cartoons are all about um, working together with other people. And yeah. um, they kind of teach a sort of ethical um, value of cooperation and and kindness towards others. So it, it was a rather mixed ethical um, bag that I narrated <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. and, and you've said that in terms that that you wouldn't have believed when you were growing up if someone told you you'd one day write not one but two books about torture. Yeah. <laughs> and yet torture <laughs> was... Um, it was a reality that you knew about. It, it was a fact of life um, in the air you breathed culturally and, and even in your own family history.
1: Oh, yeah. No, that, that's certainly true. Um, it, it, it kept on seeping back in. Um, I think... Uh, you know, when I when I think back on on my childhood, I think of a history class where um, it was mandatory that all Iranians had to take Persian history, um, and there was no exception for me, even though I was in an international school. And we were taught about um, the the old kings and how unjust they were and um this was always um ended with praise of the monarchy, the Shah at the time All right and um one of the famous incidents that they describe is is a case of a king who walked into a um um a rebel city about uh, two hundred years ago, and he um, ordered a series of brutal punishments, including removing the eyes of about ten thousand people, mm-hmm. and um, everybody, of course, was horrified. And you know, as you can imagine, kids talk about these things. For me, um, this was difficult in a different way because this was a, an ancient relative of mine, mm-hmm. um, and so the puzzle that I went away from is: Yeah, I, I knew that he was a cruel man. What I don't understand is why he needed eyes. Hmm. Um, why couldn't he have just killed people or anything yeah. like that? So, I guess the sociologist in me was born. Um, right. You know, I come from an old, an old aristocratic family. You know, that was accustomed to power on my father's side, and. Um, and they didn't exercise power always particularly um, in a in a noble or just way, um, and yet they had these great ideals of gentlemanliness and mm. kindness and mercy, and there was always a, a deep tension um, in those values. Um, so yeah, that was part of my childhood, and then of course growing up in Iran at that time, um, you know, we all knew that there was a secret service. My father worked in the official opposition and when the king dissolved the official opposition in 75, um, people disappeared. Um, so there was a feeling that at all times you were being watched, um, mm-hmm. that uh, people disappeared um, and and so you, you... And yet there was the irony where when Time magazine did a big expose on torture um, in Iran, um, it was available for sale At the Hilton Hotel, and uh, you know, so there was these. Everybody knew that bad things were happening, and that these things weren't incompatible with modernization, with washing machines and dry cleaners. Right. I mean,
0: and I think this is a a point you make that's important to to draw out that um, you had a lovely childhood, also in many ways, and that you you were in fact living in a modern society. Right. That the fact of torture merged with it was a modern, educated, cultured world
1: yeah I think that there's no question about that i i I lived in a a very modern world well i mean relatively to to many places um uh it wasn't like I was going to school on donkeys or something mm-hmm. like that i i you know I had bus services and and taxis and movie theaters and there was even an ice rink that we went skating on mm-hmm. <laughs> so and you know most people don't associate these things with Tehran but Tehran was a very cosmopolitan city in the seventies, a a very stable city, a bustling city, Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I guess the connection between modernity and violence, um, you know, what it is to be modern and and what kinds of things that precludes was always a problem. Um, I think this really got cemented for me about. Um, five years after I came to the United States, when and when was that? Of, um, um, when um, well, I came s- to the United States in seventy-seven okay. um, to go to Swarthmore College, and um, and then um, I I didn't go back for to Iran for twenty years mm. after that. Um, but the the revolution um, when it came uh, brought many of my parents' friends to the United States as well as other people that I didn't know. And um, in the early 80s, when I was sitting in exile communities um, talking to friends and relatives of my parents, um, I met someone who was very high up in the Iranian secret police under the Shah. And um, I can't say for a fact that that he was a torturer, but all the evidence suggests that he was certainly present when much um, happened. And what was shocking to me was how um, sophisticated he was, how hmm. educated, how philosophical, how um, – uh, how would I put it? I mean he knew French theater and opera and and yet this extreme form of sophistication um, probably was combined with a, a deep sense of brutality. And I was um, – I mean my father um, – Introduced me, and and he was very curious about the work I did, and I I told him, and he seemed completely impervious to— Were you working um, on
0: torture then already? Yeah, I was working on my master's
1: thesis at that point. Yeah, he was somewhat impervious to this. And, in fact, I showed him a series of photographs of torture that I'd taken over, that I'd gathered from the 1880s onwards Mm. to the present. And he looked, it was sort of a transition from classical to modern torture. And he looked at it, and he looked at the modern stuff and and the old stuff, and he said, isn't it amazing what the king saved us from, and now we've gone back to it? And I was Uh. having a great deal Uh. of trouble with that Uh. one, because I couldn't understand how someone could look at the same set of photographs and draw that conclusion. Hmm. So that was a, a real instructive moment to me because, you know, everybody kind of thinks that when evil walks in the door, it's going to have horns on its head and a tail. And actually, you know, I didn't have to read Eichmann in Jerusalem or any Hannah Arendt to understand that basically much that happens in the world happens without that. Basically, um, when evil walks in the door, it usually has a good French education or an American education and <laughs> Out invites you out for a beer mm-hmm. and is very friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. I mean, I, I realized that um, understanding the history of my relatives and understanding that people make choices um, and they have consequences um, was very important to me um, in being able to deal with those situations. Okay. Um, does that help? I'm yeah, <laughs> no, that's great.
0: Well, all right, and that and I took where I want to where I want to go next is I mean one thing that you know, and that feels important to me as context for whatever for the discussion we're having about torture now and the discussion we may continue to have, um, is that um, that this culture U.S. culture has a history with this as well. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Um, um, the uh, when I, you know, I mean, I think we we like to think that we don't have a history of torture at all, right? I mean, part uh, of it,
0: there's this, there's a there's a some tone being set here that, well, for this brief period, we, you know, we betrayed our best traditions and have done something completely astonishing, but <clears throat> that's not really true to to the big picture.
1: That's right. We, we, we don't – I mean the history of torture in democratic societies, I should say, you know, right off the bat, is not anywhere comparable to the history of torture in authoritarian societies. Mm-hmm. I mean they truly deserve their uh, reputation for cruelty. Um, but that said, it's not to say that we don't have a history. We just have a different history. Mm-hmm. And our history um, really in the last 200 years um, – begins with our transition, um, our effort to break away from um, what we would what we might call savage or our bloody punishments like whipping, for example, yeah. to other forms of coercion and um, this is of course characteristic of all democratic societies because one of the ideas behind democracies is that you use no more force than is necessary to perform your job, whereas you know authoritarian uh, states don't care. Um, so, uh, not surprisingly, um, when torture comes back into um, the life of democracies, um, it it comes back um, often uh, in the twentieth century in a clean form. That is to say, you, it 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 doesn't leave many marks.
0: You talk about this kind of stealth torture.
1: Yeah, I do, mm-hmm. and I think this is different. I mean, because you know. One thing to remember is that democracies going as far back as the Greeks and the Romans had legalized torture um, and the Renaissance republics did too. But what's different about ours uh, is that we're liberal democracies. And so naturally um, we have um, certain conceptions of individual rights and um, there are organizations, church groups, um, human rights groups, um, press, who watch um, police, uh, military, when they perform the actions that they do. And so if you leave uh, a bloody trail behind you, um, then you produce a scandal um, or um, you create damage to your organization. Many things can happen. And so very early on um, – well, not early on, but in the late 19th century, it becomes clear as these types of organizations become more active. Um, in United States and France and England. The police clean up their act, mm-hmm. and basically when we're watching, um, cops get sneaky. Um, and so not surprisingly, we started using techniques different from authoritarian states, techniques that left few marks.
0: And I mean you, you make this interesting point that it's kind of a double-edged sword that um, we uh, citizens of a democratic culture um, – m- that there are that there are these ways to monitor this, and uh, and yet then I think you said we torture has changed in ways we become complicit in that this pressure, um, in fact, makes this become more hidden.
1: Yeah, it, it's a perverse effect of of monitoring. Um, on the one hand, sort of the model that we have is if outrage happens. Uh, and we draw it to the attention of the public, the public will mobilize and things will change. Um, and the lesson that people who uh, want to commit outrageous acts draw from that is, well, then let's make sure outrage doesn't happen. Um, and then uh, it tends to disappear. And, I mean, the value of a clean technique basically is that the public can't tell how much pain someone is in. I mean, if I told you that I'm depriving you of sleep or... Or waterboarding you, that's different than if you can show, stand up in front of a camera and show me a gigantic scar of a whip across your chest. Right. Um, and, and that just is a, a very visceral thing. People judge more by what they see than what they hear about. And so um, these kinds of things disappear. It doesn't mean that we can't see them. And, um, you know, there are doctors and there are experts who now can identify clean techniques. Um, but then it becomes a battle of experts. Um so yeah there is a perverse effect and um you know one of the conclusions i kind of reluctantly draw from this is that um you know torture doesn't just hide in some military barracks somewhere it it locates itself often uh when it's not politically approved in barracks and fraternities and mm. um families and that's where it really hides um and it's only when the top authorizes or allows, says, okay, boys, you can do this, that the bottom comes running out with the practices. Um, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that torture's is, I mean, these kinds of practices that I'm talking about are um, exactly that, practices like sexual practices. You know, government can authorize them, legalize them, make them less permissible or not, but um, they will disappear. You know, prohibiting them just pushes them underground. It's not that they disappear entirely.
0: Um is it right – you've said that electric torture, electro-torture began in the United States in the early 20th century? And was that – was this part yeah. of the reason for that?
1: Yeah, it's the, certainly the first um, – uh, it's the the first cases that we know of people being subjected to electricity um, in a, a incarcerated condition. And I should explain what I, what I study, I suppose. What I mean by torture is that someone was detained and helpless – Um, And there's a state agent who's applying electrical pain in this case um, for purposes of intimidation or confession or information. Mm -hmm. And the first case we have of something like this involving electricity happened somewhere between 1900 and 1910. The uh, um, anarchist – Uh, philosopher Emma Goldman used to receive letters from prisoners in various uh, prisons around the United States. And she describes a device called the hummingbird, which was used to keep order um, in New York prisons, which was electrical. And I suspect that it was something like a cattle prod and it hummed with electricity. Um, The first really certain case that we have um, of electrical torture was um, probably um, the – the electrical monkey, which was a a device a magneto, that um, was used by the Dallas police in 1916, um, and it was called the electrical monkey because it was applied to African Americans to secure confessions. Mm. Um, so, electrical monkey, mm. um, it and you know this is um, and then of course there are a number of other instances that follow. Electricity was and most people don't realize it in the early 20th century, um, very much an American um, thing. It defined us as a people. Um, And so it's not surprisingly that that even the police adopted these kinds of techniques in the United States before Europeans did.
0: You also use the word torture to describe um, treatment of blacks, of African Americans in the South into the 50s, Mm -hmm. right?
1: Yeah. I mean, for me... What's really important is um, if the person is a state agent or whether the state allows for or designates mm-hmm. um, other groups of people to do enforcement for it. So, for example, a death squad that tortures um, um, and keeps order on behalf of the state, um, I'm certainly willing to make the case that that's um, torture similarly with lynching um, and things like that. Um, I I do think that it there is a sort of – the history of torture is part of the broader history of cruelty, and there's certainly a relationship between the two okay. um, techniques from the history of cruelty pass on to the history of torture but what is really different about um, torture is that it involves the the public trust um, mm. that is to say when um, when i when I am uh, Held in a uh, a prison, or, well, in a basement, and my neighbor decides that he doesn't like my sidewalk, and decides to torture me to make sure that I improve. Um, he applies only the physical force that he himself is capable of. Um, when I am detained in a prison, um, and he is a state agent then he applies this with the full trust and public authority and all the resources that the state gives you. And that... Um, has always been, going back to the Romans, one of the characteristics of torture, that it involves the public trust. Whether you believe as the Romans that this is a good thing or whether you believe as the United Nations that this is a bad thing, all these definitions include the use or abuse of the public trust. Because once you give someone political authority, they have a lot more power over you. Mm -hmm. And when they abuse it, then it becomes not just a crime, it becomes a war crime. Um, And we, we treat it, differently. The same thing is true of war. A fight between two individuals is maybe a duel, but it's never a war. It requires a yeah. state and a violation of um, the public rules of war, whatever those might be, for something to become a war crime. Because again, when you, f- when you kill someone on your own, that's murder or assault. Right. When you engage with the public trust, it's, it's another thing entirely.
0: So... um So in 2009, um, we are reckoning with a new form of this. Um, And I want to read you a little bit of the way. So this is from a New York Times summary of the revelations of torture in the Bush administration, kind of trying to lay out what we had learned and were learning. And I want to ask you if if you think this is the right way to tell this story. Um Okay. And and a, and a, you know and I think it's legitimate to quote the New York Times because it it is a real a definitive voice in our cultural and political narrative and will be for as long as it continues to exist. <laughs> um so so here's what they said. And and, and again I think it's interesting that this is written as, you know, here are the facts, okay? Here there's there's no there's no there are no uh conditional words in here. It's like, we're going to tell you just the bare, the bare bones facts. All right. In its scramble to create a system, the agency made the momentous decision to use harsh methods that the government had long condemned. It borrowed its techniques from an American military training program modeled on the torture repertories of the Soviet Union and other Cold War adversaries, a lineage that would come to haunt the agency. Is that the story you would tell about what happened in these last years? Um,
1: it's part of the story. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that any account, um, and we'll see this in about 10 or 15 years, of what happened in the last few years won't be a, single, a simple, single line. It's okay. going to be multifaceted. Um, and What's kind I'll, of interesting
0: I'll, to me about that is this idea that in its scramble to create a system— that there was nothing, yeah. and then there was something, and that what that something was taken from another culture, not our own. I don't, you know what I'm hearing there?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, that's right. Well, the yeah, the, the you mean the the going from we were completely clueless, um,
0: completely clueless, had only condemned it, um, and we had to find something that had happened in the Soviet Union to have techniques. I don't know. Maybe that's true, but it feels.
1: Yeah, I guess what I would – I guess the first thing I would do is I would distinguish in the story between where the demand – for tough techniques came from and where the supply. I mean, they're very different kinds of things. Um, the demand side of this, I mean, I guess I feel like these days we're all economists. So I'm talking right. like demand right. and supply. But but I think that, that that's a really important distinction. On the one hand, I think it's clear that in Washington, there was a demand for um, intelligence and information and also a series of decisions were made to set um, prisoners outside of any kind of legal protections, um, which is often sort of exactly the way in which torture happens. Where, uh, as soon as you put someone in a place where they're not monitored and there are no clear rules and there are no legal protections, then bad things typically follow. Yeah. Um, so that that is a predisposition, and 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 they didn't know what works. But you know, and and then the flip side of it is. Well, once they authorized it, where did the techniques come from? And that's the supply side. And most people think, well, these techniques actually come from people's abnormal psychology or they come from a vault in the CIA or at SEER. Whereas, in fact, these techniques have a long history in the United States. We have similar techniques like waterboarding documented um, in Um, INS detention centers in Miami in the 1990s. Hmm. Uh, We have accounts of waterboarding by Texas police officers in the 1980s. Um, These are old techniques. It's important to recognize that torture is a style or a craft. And torturers tend to be creatures of habit. Um, And so uh, they're not usually abnormal. They're usually chosen to be uh, normal, loyal, patriotic, can-keep-a-secret kinds of people. And so, uh, you you know, we have a. I mean, this is one of the things that my book, kind of "Torture and Democracy," kind of shows out, which is that there are really two modern traditions, and one of them, the Anglo-Saxon tradition of torture, what I call Anglo-Saxon modern, is um, it's a it's a a tradition that was certainly there among security agencies and police. long before there were memos and long before there was a system um and i'll give you an example um you know i think many people think that you know torture happened um once the memos arrived i mean and this right. is a right. very right. very um peculiar notion that somehow the cia waits for a document um, before it goes out and does stuff or that the army waits for a document, whereas much torture that we know doesn't ha- fit that characteristic model at all. And I think when the histories are written, I think they will discover, um, and I think there's plenty of – there's some evidence of this already, that torture had begun in um, the United States uh, under – sorry, torture had uh-huh. begun in Afghanistan. As early as January 2002, long before the memos were written, um, there's a case in which I have entered in a submission in Washington D.C. where the person who was tortured, um, or at least you know whatever the techniques that um, you know we now dispute over, those techniques were being used on this person and several other people in detention in Kandahar, in. January of 2002, that's six months before any legal documents were ever written.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, and I think when you read those memos, um, it's clear that the, what, that what's going on is a justification. It's finding legal language to justify something.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, this doesn't change the I want to blame someone argument. It uh-huh. just says that those documents are – it's the cover-up. That's right. more dangerous than the authorization, you know. It it it's uh, these documents authorize things that probably were already in motion um, on the ground, and um, we don't know. Um, I certainly don't know um, what people were doing before, but I I, I understand, for example, that. Um, well, actually, I'm not even going to go there right? because yeah. I, I don't want to sort of jeopardize mm-hmm. legal cases. Mm-hmm. But in any case, uh, you know, there is um, there's there is um, a kind of fetishization of documents where we somehow think that the document is really evidence of what happened. Um, you know, it, 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 and that only captures a part of it. I and mean, let me give you a completely different example. Okay. Um, when the uh, Nuremberg People wanted to uh, try um, the Gestapo for torture, the French and Russian prosecutors. They looked for documents, and you know we have documents that say in one thousand nine hundred and thirty seven the justice Ministry sat down with the Gestapo and they agreed on a on a multiple point um, uh, interrogation method called sharpened interrogation, which involved oh. beating someone with a stick a certain number of times. A doctor should be present. Everything should be done. Permission only authorized from Berlin. Uh, forms needed to be filled out. Um, and we have a reissue of that um, document in um, 1942 by Gustavo Chief Mueller. And now, all of a sudden, there are a number of new techniques um, and of what we would undoubtedly call torture. Um, but they're not like whipping or any of the things that the Gestapo is famous for. They're more like for standing, sleep deprivation, all sorts of things like that. And then um, the number of people who to whom this could be applied to has also increased. Um, and yet, um, we know that Gestapo torture on the ground bore no resemblance to what is in these memos. Mm. Um, and we also know that... Um, almost nobody, I mean, we have no completed forms um, asking for permission um, from Berlin. Uh, We have one uncompleted form from Slovenia. Um, And it it seems that however much you want to close torture and bureaucracy, torture has these slippery slopes. The number of techniques increases, the number of... um, the number of victims and the types of victims increase. And basically torturers become a, a force unto themselves um, independent of the lawyers who try to regulate them. Right. Um, and that's a really – that's one of the reasons why torturers and torture bureaucracies constitute huge dangers to states whether they're authoritarian or – democratic. I mean, let me give you one last example. Okay. The Bybee and the Bradbury memos, which were the released. Lawyers that torture the memos. lawyers, mm-hmm. which are the torture memos. I mean, nobody else but me would be interested in this. But if you count the number of techniques that are in the Bybee memo, they are about one third less than the techniques that appear in the Bradbury memo. And the less intrusive techniques in the Bybee memo disappear. <laughs> And new techniques are added in the Bradbury memo. I mean, that's a. I mm-hmm. I mean, it's not – I don't think that Bradbury was counting the techniques, but it's pretty clear that there is a slippery slope and things were just running out of control. The legal language gives a false sense that this is actually policy or control right. when it's not.
0: Right. So part of the, the public focus um, after the release of this has been um, who knew when. Right, yes. and so here's here's again, and in fact, it's just turning into this focal point. Um, so here's again from that New York Times summary, um, you know, a high level. I guess this was this was actually yeah, this was published earlier this year in the New York Times. A high a series of high level meetings in 2002 led to an official embracing of harsh interrogation methods, without a single dissent from cabinet members or lawmakers. The extraordinary consensus was possible largely because no one involved, not the top two CIA officers pushing the program, not the senior aides to Mr. Bush, not the leaders of the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, investigated the gruesome origins of the techniques they were approving with little debate. What I want to ask you is um, I wonder if that's a common feature of the kind of decision-making that sets these kinds of practices in motion or validates them. The, the, I mean, I can imagine people didn't want to know. They didn't want to know the gruesome techniques, right?
1: Right. right. Either you knew or you didn't know. If, if you knew, um, then the you know incentive was for you to pretend that you were ignorant. <laughs> uh-huh. And if you were, if you to if know you didn't as little know, as you possibly could. To know as dance. little as you possibly could. That's right. I mean, I think, and and you know, what assists people in this is that um, these techniques, as I say. Very few of these techniques leave marks um, most people for example don't know that sleep deprivation isn't depriving someone of their naps um, but it it's uh, more like um, well what it does is it it actually creates deep muscle pains and aches in all your joints within twenty four to forty eight hours so combined with um, a uh, um, combined with uh, standing or any kind of stress position, it can be excruciating. Um, they also didn't explore and, – and this is uh, – let's suppose that you really did think that these techniques had gruesome origins. They never explored um, also what these techniques did in terms of the information you got. Okay. Um, so for example, sleep deprivation was famously used for false confessions. Um, and it was used by the Soviets and the North Koreans and the Chinese. You mean for across false the
0: decades? it has... Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And that's
1: because basically, once you're deprived of sleep, you can't tell where you're getting your information from. So if I repeatedly ask you, did you see mr smith you 're pretty soon going to have some vivid, vivid memories of Mr. Smith mm. um, under repeated questioning um, and this is why you know sleep deprivation when it first emerged in the hands of Englishmen and Scots, it happened during witch hunts where you got these magnificent confessions of of meeting with the devil mm. um, now it 's important to recognize that even the Inquisition hated sleep deprivation because they realized that it produced inaccurate information. And yet when you read these documents, um, it's as if, though, uh, this is a magical cure and that we can get accurate information from them. So there was a, there is, regardless of whether you know the origins or not, a tremendous amount of ignorance about these techniques.
0: Hmm. And, you know, you make a statement that um, just from something you know from all your research that Torture creates an unprofessional atmosphere. And, you know, it seems to me that that unprofessional atmosphere, you can also – that's also one way you can describe what's happening in these cabinet meetings or briefings of lawmakers where they don't ask these complicated questions about the yeah, consequences. T- yeah,
1: torture has a deprofessionalization effect, that, unquestionably so. And that's because um, uh, basically you think – um if you i mean the the gist of it boils down to um i might be doing everything according to the rules but if I uh, just stay within the rules, then and I might lose my job or I might not get the benefits from it. So I'm going to edge the rules up and apply one more technique or apply one more torture. And pretty soon torturers who want to be professionals end up looking like sadists, um, hmm. even though that's not what they're doing. But, yeah, torture is very dangerous for four professions basically, lawyers, politicians, uh, medical professionals, and journalists. Hmm. <laughs> um, huh. And – and in, in, you know, it, it's dangerous for um, all of them because they can kind of get sucked into this little step-by-step step where they don't uh, necessarily um, – once you've accepted the first element of it, then they feel sort of compelled. Slippery slopes happen not because uh, – they happen for, for a couple of – two or three reasons. One is that peer pressure, which is that as a group, we're not going to notice – um, the big elephant in the room. And right. if the group basically says no, uh, then you won't really break the consensus. Um, another reason that peer pressure happens or, or slippery slopes and torture happen is that people um, – what they um, – they, they they feel compromised. So they'll say um, – uh, you know, I, I've I've drunk a cup of you know, I've I've taken a free cup of coffee, so then why not take all the whole can or something like that. I've I've drunk a bit of it, I've done a little evil, and so I'm already committed. So I just hope that it, it works through. Um and lastly I think and it's hard to underestimate how this um affects the other two, is that when you have fuzzy backgrounds, when you don't know the threat you're confronting, when you can't distinguish between civilians and terrorists and, you know, however that works for you, fuzzy backgrounds combined with peer pressure and a sense that we're already implicated can really drive a slippery slope and make it much slipperier for medical officers and psychologists and politicians.
0: So, you know, I don't know if this is what you're thinking of when you say that, but you know, one thing I don't really want to talk to you about here is whether torture works or not, quote unquote Thank works, <laughs> right? But but it seems to me that um, to the extent that there's been a discussion all these years, um, <clears throat> either at the in those secret places or publicly, I mean, this is a this is a a way in which it seems to me, would you say, politicians, doctors, journalists, uh, what was the other one, military or? Uh, let's see. Doc- doctors,
1: doctors, journalists, lawyers, and and oh, lawyers. Uh, that
0: that, lawyers. that that this question, this narrow question of does it work or not, hijacked the discussion, and in fact was a distraction and a narrowing from other t- discussions we might have been having about larger cons- consequences, not eff- the efficacy, but consequences.
1: Yeah. No. It's it's certainly true. Um, I mean, the central question ought to have been, what is good counterterrorism policy? Mm -hmm. Um, And by those standards, torture is terrible, good counterterrorism policy. And I think most policing professionals would tell you that. But yes, um, the other side of this is consequences. Um, Most people um, are unaware that once you authorize uh, a torture bureaucracy, it has a number of um, unforeseen consequences. One of them is it. Um, well, I mean, for for I mean, just, let's put it in its most basic form. Um, when you authorize torture, you give one individual, however you want to describe this, absolute power over another individual, and we can't look at the history of slavery without knowing how corrupting that is to a society. And we can't look at the history of torture without knowing how corrupting that is to societies or to governments that authorize it. Um, it sets into motion a series of changes which often take 10 to 20 years for them to work out um, of a society. And and some of them are, are bureaucratic. For example, um, a, a split develops in your agency between – um, the professionals who want to do proper policing methods and the torturers who just want to whack the guy with a bat or stick mm. his head in a, in a vat of butter. And usually one side or the other leaves. Um, in the American case, many, many professionals, um, FBI, CIA, et cetera, left the agencies. So that's one. But the other problem is you train a group of people to torture. What are they going to do afterwards? words? Um, you know, when they're decommissioned. Where do torturers go? And the answer is that they go to um, private security and local police forces around uh, your home and mine. Um, And so torture that was international becomes domestic. I think um, most Mm. people know what waterboarding is, but um, most people don't understand that waterboarding was something that American forces first learned um, a technique, for the most part, this particular technique was learned for the most part during their campaign, the American campaign in the Philippines in 1905. And when these troops come back to the United States, they become police officers all throughout the United States. And by the 1930s, the uh, American Bar Association committee documents that waterboarding is pretty common, especially in the American South. Hmm. Um, so techniques come home. Same thing with Chicago. Um, torture has been documented in Chicago from seventy-three to ninety-three, and the techniques that appear there—the electrical techniques—were first documented in American hands in southern Vietnam in nineteen sixty-three. So um, I think most people are unaware of the incredibly long shadow that torture casts. Not in, not just for a government. But, for society, and lastly, I think for the families that um, are involved in this process um, you know the 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 cases of atrocity related trauma um, right. that are tied to to torture are um, the the domestic abuse, alcoholism suicide rates. none of these things are um, calculated when people think about torture
0: now you you mentioned that there were um for police professionals who knew, at least, understood much of this—that that this is not a good policy for for many reasons—and you know, it's, I had a conversation with Jane Mayer, um, who's of course done uh, excellent reporting on this mm-hmm. for the New Yorker, who talked about all the military lawyers who resigned. Yes. Um, now, maybe I haven't been reading the right things, but I kind of feel like that's a story that hasn't been told. Who left? Because they knew, <laughs> because they had yeah, other oh, kinds of information.
1: There's a whole book to be written on that. Not only who left, but what happened to the whistleblowers, um, the people who who said no. And um, you know, I mean, there were um, certainly the military lawyers um, were the first. In fact, I think what's really interesting about that story is that um, you know, it, you know, during Watergate, it was the civilian lawyers that. Um, broke with the presidency. you know. So John Dean and – it's John Dean, right? Mm. Uh, it, whereas right. in this in this case, yeah, it was – during the Watergate, it was the civilian lawyers who did that. Whereas in this case, the civilian lawyers proved to be um, very malleable. Whereas the military lawyers who had a much stronger sense of the implications of torture, for example, for the treatment of our soldiers should they ever fall into enemy hands – um, they understood immediately that the consequences of these kinds of techniques would be that they would uh, put American soldiers at risk in future conflicts um and so yeah, they went and um i I believe they they approached scott horton um who uh was head of the human rights committee for the new york bar association and they um um and then they they discussed you know that and they broke right but i think the The sort of general um problem is that there were many there were some people along the line, not just the military lawyers but say captain fishback um, there were um people within the CIA right people, people
0: who left rather than take part in the new and
1: who said these things mm-hmm. and then were were driven out you know um mm-hmm. um colonel, Cl- uh, colonel i think it's colonel Kleiman. um yeah i mean i mean one of the things that I think. We have on the books is whistleblower laws, um, but it's pretty clear that the whistleblower laws in this case broke, and the whoever office was responsible for managing um, this either failed to follow these techniques or or did not do a particularly good job of following up techniques. Army CID or whatever the particular version is. I mean, I'm sure people will will analyze these in due course. Um, but what I think is important is that um, we really don't know – we know a lot more about what leads people to do evil, I guess, um, than what leads people to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. And and what's, what the stories of the whistleblowers tell me is that basically either you have to have a strong commitment like the military lawyers do to an alternative life um, – such as military code of honor or something like Mm. that. Mm. Or um, you have to have a deep religious foundation like Captain Fishback. Um, And this is consistent with what we know from other um, cases where people said no. For example, during the French-Algerian War, the people who um, objected to torture in Algeria were either um, – Evangelical Catholics um, like General Bollardier or, um, um, or Auschwitz survi- – or you know, concentration camp survivors right. like Prefect hmm. um or um, members of the French Socialist Party who um, disagreed with um, – Who had a strong the, system the policies. Of Yeah, who had an alternative set uh-huh. of values. Uh-huh. It's very important to have an alternative set of values to be able to stand. And if you don't, then the system gives your values for you.
0: And, you know, another thing that Jane Mayer talks about is, all, and I don't think this is out really there, the all the doctors and the scientists who became involved no. in justifying this. And there, you know, you do think of the system of, you'd think of do no harm, <laughs> right, at least with the right. medical profession. And it's very hard to imagine how that was reconciled.
1: Yeah. Although, again, when we think about it in the the broad scale of things, it isn't surprising. Doctors have been involved in torture for a very long time, Um, prison doctors in particular, um, have a very different – or military doctors have very different um, involvement and personal associations with the uh, military or the – the prison officers that they work with. And it shouldn't surprise us that that doctors get involved in these things. Um, What is – again, you know, I would imagine that with doctors, um, the central concern is um, whether they they really do believe that they have a a certain kind of connection. I mean I'll I'll give you another famous example – there were doctors in Northern Ireland in the 1970s who were noticing the bruises and scars that were left, very faint ones, but um, that were left on prisoners who had been interrogated by the Royal Ulster Constabulary. Um, and the um, they documented these. They tried to, to um, raise protests within the system. They were constantly shut down. And then finally um, they went out and gave the press all the the, the details. Mm-hmm. And this turned out to be a gigantic scandal that brought down – I think the labor government um, contributed to it for sure at the time. So um, prison doctors um, do uh, actually have these commitments. But again, they are perhaps more um, caught up in the system right. because – They basically, like soldiers, are uh, are supposed to appeal within the system before they appeal outside of it. And by that time, they feel so implicated sometimes that they can't really say anything. And others, of course, as you say, just work along with it because for whatever reasons, they don't think that these things constitute torture um, Mm -hmm. or that they will ever be um, called to account for it.
0: So tell me something of what you know Um, about what effect torture has on the torturer.
1: Well, we we have studies um, of Greek and Brazilian and and French torturers. Those are our main cases and a few American stories. Um, What we know is that um, everything depends, atrocity-related trauma, um, which is one of the things that some torturers have, very much depends on how guilty you feel. Um, And um, if you have a very strong ideological disposition to regard the other side as inhuman, then – so like the Gestapo guards, they don't develop atrocity-related trauma Mm -hmm. in the norm. Whereas if you feel like you're just torturing someone out of necessity, uh, which is almost characteristic of the democratic torturer, uh, then, yeah, you you can develop all all sorts of issues related to atrocity-related trauma like – uh, irritability um, spontaneous you know expressions of anger potential suicide you know various sorts of things like that um but beyond that um what we know even if you don't develop atrocity related trauma is that you experience job burnout um, this is really one of the things that um, uh, the um, the study of the Brazilian torturers uh really spells out for you quite clearly, um, which is that, um, you know, if someone was involved in a death squad, uh, they feel like that's, you know, much more, um, how would I put it, exciting um, that their job is done once they fired the bullet like James Bond. Hmm. Um, but and they don't take their work home, whereas what most people forget is that torture is a labor intensive activity. Hmm. I mean, when we forget, when we talk about boarding uh, KSM for 183 times, that's a lot of work Um, Mm. and a lot of hours. And you you take your work home with you. um, And that's – there's um, all sorts of sort of anxieties related to job performance and competitiveness that appears among torturers. Why should – because torture is basically a zero-sum game. Uh, If I have worked up softening up this person for the last – two hours, why should I surrender him to you and have you break this person and get all the glory Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. I uh, could just hang on and just if I was just a bit more violent and a bit more cruel, I might get the reward myself. This is very different than the kind of normal competition between, say, two policemen working on a case where I work on fingerprinting and you work on clues. This becomes... Um, it encourages cruelty as opposed to discourages cruelty. And you you so, have described uh,
0: kind of toxic levels of shame, is the way yeah. you've described it. That, of ultim- uh, later, I guess, eventually.
1: That's right, and it doesn't happen because, like, they have this huge revelatory moment where you know uh, they've been reading Jane Eyre and it just dawns on them, right. oh, I've been doing torture. Right. Uh, much as we would hope that that this is the way it happens, often it happens in. Um, unexpected ways. Um, uh, you know, you go to a movie, everyone describes what's happening in the movie as torture, and you think, well, that's not as bad as what I did. Uh, or, or, And then you begin to realize that, oh, what they're thinking of is that what I did is torture. Um, so it, it happens not because there's this big revelatory moment, but it, it can dawn on you very slowly over time. The other thing I, I will say is that all our... Information, and, and this is important to keep in mind, all our information about torturers comes f- after the fact. Um, it's not like right. we can go in and, and right. interview torturers. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, torturers tailor their stories to the political conditions which they find themselves in. So if, for example, um, the society turns against torture, then it wouldn't be surprising for torturers to say, "Yeah, I, I, I'm really suffering, or I didn't mean to do it." Or so. Whereas, if, for example, the society has never resolved the torture um, issue, um, they may, may be much more unrepentant. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be much more certain. So the, there's um, different stories that torturers tell. Depending on the political conditions that they perceive,
0: I think something in your work that seems important to me now, as we work through what's happened in the U.S., um, is you note that that the deep trauma that can be there for for torture people who have tortured um, that that the trauma is deepest um, among. Those who were closest to it. So the foot soldiers rather than the commanders. Um, the facilitators yeah, I mean the, are less affected than the implementers.
1: Right. That's another um, characteristic that we find from the cases, which is that the higher up the, the chain of command you are, the less evidence of of guilt or shame or any of these things. The mm-hmm. lower down, the more culpable you are. And there's, there's something – it can't be denied. There's something very visceral about – Applying pain to someone's to another human being, uh, uh, putting hand on flesh, mm-hmm. and um, and that is something that just stays with you.
0: Whereas it, yeah. if you just
1: order it, it's different.
0: And yet, I mean, if to come back to these words of Abraham Joshua Heschel, that I I think apply in so many situations. And in, in a democracy, while some are guilty, all are responsible. I mean, there's a, there's a there's a sense in which um, we, all of us as citizens, have to reckon with these things. Now that we know, we can't escape that knowledge. We're done in our name, and yet yeah. it's clear that we're we're not going to be traumatized um, in the way that the people who who enacted it, and and that even the doctors and lawyers aren't going to be traumatized the way the people working in military prisons.
1: That's true. Maybe. That's true. Um, And I think, well, I mean, I guess this is a distinction I would draw between sort of active injustice and passive injustice. You know, the active injustice is the people who did it. The passive injustice presumably is the people who stood by and didn't intervene or prevent things from happening. And the question is, of course, both prospective and retrospective. I'm much more interested in the prospective mm-hmm. question, but 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 let me just briefly say, retrospectively speaking, um, it's really questionable what all of us could do, could have done. I mean, one of the the things that I'm very familiar with um, is I've been I've been following American public opinion polling on torture and ticking time bombs since 2001, and there American public. I mean, there's a sort of impression among journalists and politicians that most Americans actually approved of torture, either in a especially in a ticking time bomb situation, especially if the person has high level information that might save American lives. But when you look at all the polls, and I, we just finished this big comprehensive archive of them of thirty polls um, that all involve ticking time bomb or urgent terrorist questions, there has never been a, a pro. Um, torture uh, majority in America. In fact, opposition to torture has consistently been exactly the same, roughly between 55 and 60 and okay. percent. And support for torture has always been about 35 percent, with lows as low as 15 and highs as 49, depending on the question you asked. But I mean, even when we don't even use the word torture, when we, um, when we just say, would you use this technique um, if you thought that Um, there was a high-value person with high-value information and you were assured that this technique had a high chance of working. Americans still oppose it. I mean waterboarding gets a 70 70 to 80% negative rating on Mm. that even when you don't use the word torture. So I'm actually not too worried about the condition of the American public. I think the American public repeatedly said to pollsters what they thought. But they were deeply misrepresented um, by politicians and journalists, there was a kind of false consensus about what was out there. So retrospectively thinking, I'm not sure what more the American people could have done to express their outrage. Maybe uh, some of us could have – they could have formed a social movement. But in fact, that's what's happening now, right? right I mean, what's right. happening now is that finally we're getting our anti-torture movement. It was bound to happen. Um, it happened in France um, as a result of the Algerian War. Um, And it brought together um, an alliance from across the the spectrum from the right to the left. Um, In France, it it brought together for the first time since the French Revolution, um, the Catholic Church and the the left-wing socialists. (laughs) Um, Because there's – and we're going to – and we're seeing the same thing here. Are you seeing that
0: kind of spectrum here we're seeing the, the same US. thing here.
1: I mean, we, we're seeing, on the one hand, evangelicals who are opposed to torture. Yes. We're seeing Republicans like Andrew Sullivan. Um, you know, I mean, the important thing is torture doesn't break on the Democratic-Republican line. And it's very hard if you look at the polls to actually say, oh, all Democrats favor this and all Republicans favor that. Torture is one of these things that cuts across those things uh, much more than than we think. Um, you know, Republicans and Democrats are are anti-torture and then the Republicans and Democrats who are pro-torture, mm-hmm. um you know, mm-hmm. Democrats like like uh, um you know I, I think I know he doesn't like being called this, but but I mean Alan Dershowitz, for example, who's a civil rights lawyer, actually has um talked about um justifying torture in extreme circumstances. All so right. you've you know, been I in think...
0: discussions with him, haven't you? Well it was yeah mm-hmm. it was
1: <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean the the thing is that it this isn't a, a Democrat-Republican line. It's it's about values and it's a, m- about much more fundamental values about whether um, any human being can be given the power to – uh, abuse another human being, um, and you can be a Republican and have very strong views on that.
0: But you know, um, in terms of the pers- looking forward, the the reckoning that that m- may now happen or be happening, you know, there are some challenging insights that you have from your work. That, for example, I don't think were applied in the way we talked about Abu Ghraib, right? Um, you know, what do you have in mind? Well, <laughs> you know, we kind of treated it as a few bad apples. And yeah. and I've even heard um I've even heard President Obama uh when he was talking about not releasing the photos, say, you know, things that were done by a few people. I'm not sure that was exactly the phrase he used. Yeah. Um but you've you've talked about conversations you had with lawyers of the um of at least one of the people of the um people who were charged of Abu Ghraib. and you you know, you said you told them you understand that you're, that that client is not a monster or a sadist. That most of us, given the right set of incentives, would torture. That that is the evidence of forty years of social scientific research, which is um, pretty chilling.
1: That's right. I mean, I think um, again, this this goes back to my point that that evil doesn't walk around in horns and or shiny jack boots. Um, you know, I think the. Um, the evidence of 40 years of social science basically falls on the side of what would be called a, a dispositional uh, – uh, sorry, a um, let, me, let me repeat this again. Mm-hmm. There are basically two possible ways in which you can um, account for why people do torture. The first is that they have a disposition for cruelty and so they are bad apples. Um, and the other is that the situation put in the right way can give incentives for anybody to torture, um, and we began the 20th century thinking that people who tortured had certain dispositions that made them cruel. And then we discovered basically two things: first of all, that organizations that torture make sure that the people who torture are not sadists because um, they sadists don't follow rules. They, you know, they they choose people to follow rules and be patriotic. If you kill the guy and get pleasure out of it, you've kind of failed to get the information. So mm. that's a problem. And this is true, we discovered not just among democratic states, but say in Cambodia, when um, we look at um, um, the genocide and, and the torture at, at Tol Slung, we actually have the interrogation, the torture manual from Tol Slung. And in it, Um, the head torturer says to his people, you have to be more disciplined, more ideological. If you just keep on doing on the pain side of things, you may kill the person before we need the information Mm. we get. Clearly, it's a problem, even in authoritarian conditions. People get sucked up by the pain. Um, So part of it is that we have very little evidence that people are chosen because they're sadists to become torturers. Historically. On All top right. of that, we have psychological evidence that suggests that given the right set of incentives, unclear rules, two types of authority, no punishment for which set of rules you follow, no regular monitoring either, and no remand before a judge, um, we can pretty much predict that violence is going to happen, um, maybe not specifically torture – But once you have conditions like that, this is what the Milgram – well, certainly the Zimbardo experiment experiment shows.
0: Just just summarize Uh, that. Would you just –
1: Well, the Zimbardo experiment was a mock prison experiment held in Stanford and um, in which uh, very normal people, uh, uh, all American um, men, um, college students, were given two sets of roles, one set of – one set were defined as guards, one set were defined as as prisoners, and they were created into a mock prison in the basement of the psychology building at Stanford. And um, all they did was play out the roles. And what happened within two or three days was that they had to stop the experiment because violent behavior – the guards started moving very rapidly towards violent behavior. And this was – Um, surprising given how normal all these kids were when they went in. Um, So the social science on this keeps on coming back saying it's the situation, not the disposition that makes people evil, all of us given the right circumstances. Having said that, I I think I've told you uh, there are people who can say no. I mean, that's really important to recognize.
0: Right. And you said we don't have the social science on them as much.
1: Yeah. You know, as we're just so fascinated with evil and uh-huh. not with why people do good. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I mean, Milgram is a very great example. He was interested in how far people would would um, elect you know, apply electroshock to someone under the guise of authority and, um, you know, in most cases they did. Um, but there were a significant number who didn't, and he never did the follow-up interviews. Do you about, say it was
0: about a third of them said it's no? It's about a third, And was yeah. it also about a third of people at Abu Ghraib who said no? I that, have did I get that no, from you? I don't know where I got I, that. I
1: don't think – I have no idea. Okay. I know that, you know, um, obviously uh, Specialist Darby said no. And specialist Darby was no different. He was the specialist. Darby was the person who gave us the photos. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, came from the same unit in West Virginia. I think um, he doesn't. There's nothing in his background that suggests that he was any different than the people who went um, with him. But um, for whatever reason, he um, I gather slid the photographs under the. Um, door of Army CID. And then there was a note that was posted that said, come back and and we can't initiate charges unless uh, – investigations unless you come in person. And so then he came in person. So w- it's hard to know what moved him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure he has his own story now because, again, he was another one of those whistleblowers who right. um, had to leave in fear. You
0: no, know, in terms of pictures um – you said something when we first began to speak um, that, of course, is a little difficult for me as a radio person to hear, but you said um, that we're galvanized more by what we see than what we hear. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. And no, I, don't, I think, you that, know, again, we yeah.
0: don't know what's between the time we have this conversation and the program airs, the pictures may be released. Um, but how do you, just, just in the abstract, or, you know, apart, aside from what happens right now at this moment in time, um, how do you think about the value uh or or drawbacks of photographs being released of this kind of activity is is that let's say for these deeper questions that we might want to reckon with um in terms of our culture and us as citizens who may have been complicit um how does that how do pictures play into that help or hinder it
1: well, i'm i'm pretty sure they can do both i mean Um, The hooded man photo um, has essentially become iconic Um, and as an icon, it it can both be used now um, by people who want to discredit the United States by showing it um, and it certainly can be used internationally as a symbol of American torture now. Mm -hmm. Um, But conversely, um, I think um, the hooded man photo um, was – Absolutely pivotal in galvanizing um, American public opinion on this question. Um, I mean, I think, I think the the events at Abu happened months before, and there were even news reports of of um, this incident um, two or three months before. There were even legal trials. There was a Reuters story, I think, in in, in February. But it was only when CBS broke the embargo on the photographs and released them that um, there was an outcry. The American, that there was an outcry. Mm-hmm. So sight, really, visual things, really matters. Which is again, you know, the truth behind the work that I've been doing. That cleanliness and torture is a big deal. Um, and what can short circuit cleanliness is a photograph, mm-hmm. right? Because it can show complicity. It can show the actual moment. Um, and it can be valuable in a court trial, obviously, as, mm. you know, Lindy England and, and all these other people discovered. So it can also be very important in terms of pinning responsibility and identifying who was there.
0: You know, I'd like to um, read an email that we actually just got uh, before I walked into the studio with you. Somebody telling us it's time for us to address torture on this show. And, <laughs> and obviously we've been thinking about that. So I'm just going to read this to you. And as for your response, um, it seems that America is torn between the supposed noble ends and the seemingly ugly means. Should we torture sometimes? Is it at all justifiable? If it works, is it okay? What about the long-term consequences? What about the victims? Um, I saw this survey, he goes on, that said churchgoers in the U.S. are more likely to approve the use of torture. Is this shocking only to me? Um, what about what about exposing evil? Should we expose that ugliness? Um, is it better to air it out or keep it under the rug? The Muslim world is not angry at us only because we torture, but also because of hypocrisy. We preach human rights all the time. If we release the photos and hold people accountable, it may go a long way in showing that we are serious, sincere, and that we have moral standards. But we are not perfect. We are a country of laws. Everybody's equal before the law. Now, obviously, this is kind of stream of consciousness, but I think it certainly he's is. Really, but he's really naming a lot of questions, uh, some of which we haven't even begun to ask collectively.
1: Yeah, it's true. Um, well, let me begin with the easiest one. Okay. <laughs> in, that, in that stream, you, you don't
0: have to uh, reply to it all. I just, well, there
1: are, there are some very very interesting. Um, when i hear it let me just begin with a personal note mm-hmm. when i hear an email like that it takes me back to um my childhood and growing up under the king and growing up with all these high-minded aristocratic values the king of
0: iran yeah and and
1: being yeah being a shah but also coming from an old family which had you know tremendous um weight on doing the honorable thing and doing the um, the the just and merciful thing, and yet with a much more mixed history. And I remember, I mean, my great-grandfather w- turned cannons on crowds during the Constitutional Revolution. And um, people said of him, I mean, he, he certainly didn't hesitate to apply harsh methods in defense of his values. Um, and, you know, people said of him, Look, um, he talks big, but it's pretty clear that all these values that the aristocracy has are just a sham. They're fake. And, you know, if they have to use violence to defend them, what value do they have? And I think, frankly, they were right. Um, And nobody mourned the passing of his world, frankly. Um, And likewise, when um, the king um, kept on attacking Khomeini for being a medieval guy— Um, Khomeini turned around and said, I don't know who's medieval. I mean, I'm not the guy who's torturing. Mm -hmm. And this turned out to be huge in terms of getting people to his side. And most people forget that the Iranian revolution, one of its central features of the Islamic revolution was that it was a revolution against torture Um, and – and it was one of the first things that was sort of introduced into the new Islamic Constitution. Now, of course, you know, obviously, follow through has been somewhat more problematic. But the point is that 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 whenever we defend our values in that way, uh, the charge of hypocrisy is is coming and and gives um, and you know, Al Qaeda's sort of argument against us is identical, which is that they talk human rights, but it's obviously a sham. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what this boils down to is is a famous old question, which is, "Is it better to be loved or feared?" And I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you would know, we rather be loved and for our human rights values, or should we be feared because we're a very um, powerful country? And I think the American answer has always been, if we fight with one hand behind our back and win, uh, we will be both loved and feared. Um, Because if we're merely loved for our human rights values but really can't enforce them, then we will be despised. Um, And if we are um, merely loved – merely feared because we are potentially violent, fear doesn't hold people in – place or or give them any respect for what you do. Um, I think that's the American answer. It's the American way, really, is that we defeat the Germans with one hand tied behind our back, and hmm. we can do this in this case as well. I mean, I really think that that's where we fall as a nation. Um, one thing I would say about the churchgoers right. is the, that... Right, uh, the, the listener's
0: <laughs> um, assertion. And I, I think this idea is out there that... Um... There are polls. You said you've studied lots of polls, but there are polls that show, I think, that um, people who attend church more frequently are more likely to support terror.
1: Right. I mean, I think the the answer there is um, people who attend church more frequently also tend to have many other factors that – might be, uh, might dispose them to be pro-torture. For example, they might have political affiliations. They might be more conservative. They might be more Republican. Any or they might be more loyal to President Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, or and might so, have at one time, Or might have been at one time, but, more, more one time, but uh-huh. the point is that that going to church. Tr- it's it's sort of like saying that you know if everybody, um, you know, it turns out that people who wear blue, mm-hmm. um, you know, are more likely to to uh, um, be. Um, you know, human <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or okay. something like that. It's just like, yeah. I don't know. I mean the, the point is that there are just too many factors there. What we would really need to look at to, to really um, get at um, this person's question is um, democratic evangelicals, um, that is to say, where do they fall on the torture question? Because that would kind of control for um, the more conservative um, – the more Republican, the more loyal to President Bush person. Mm-hmm. If, if in fact we find that they are more pro-torture, then yeah, I would sum, I would submit that that would be um, something that that your listeners should have reason to concern for. But right now, it's um, not clear to me that that's the case.
0: I, I also know, and I'm sure you do, that there are um, plenty of Christian and interfaith organizations that are that are mobilizing against torture, and also that there's been a real evolving discussion within evangelical Christianity about this.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's fluid. I think absolutely. And <laughs> yeah. and this is I have never hesitated either way to speak before any audience on this matter. But mm-hmm. I mean I think it, it's certainly true. And and this is again goes back to my point is that um knowing how anti torture movements emerge historically, um leads me to conclude that, that our sort of normal presuppositions that conservatives are like this or Democrats are like this or mm-hmm. religious people are like this and secular people are like this, they, these stereotypes, they don't work when, they, when it comes to torture. Okay. Um, and and one useful. thing, mm-hmm. And ahead. that is very important to recognize. I mean, I guess there's one other thing I, I, I would say, though, is that, you know, as a society, well, actually, I'll pass on that. Maybe we'll come back to it okay. in a different
0: way. I, I don't All know. Right? Do we have a hard stop? Okay. Well, I feel like it's a funny thing to say that we're talking about torture, but I wish feel like we could go on forever. Well, <laughs> we've got another, yeah, what, another half hour think, or so? Well, I think we, we usually go about 90 minutes. Um, oh, okay. We're, this is, this is r- great. It's going to be very hard to edit as it is. I, I mean, I do want to say, I, I have a few th- places I want to go, and then maybe we can, if there are things you want to circle back to, we can do that. Um, sure. I don't know how... This um, social scientific view you have of the human condition um, jives with what you learned from Shia Islam or Calvinist <laughs> Christianity, but I, it, it does seem to me that there's a there's an ironic upside to saying that that most of us are capable of this, given the right set of circumstances. That the upside is that if you create conditions, if you create the right conditions, most of us are not. Capable of this is that that it won't probably won 't happen
1: right, I mean exactly that um, there is an upside is that you can actually it 's very easy to prevent torture with just clear rules, clear punishment, regular monitoring, regular remand before a judge in twenty four hours It is not and most people think that torture is like this impossible thing to prevent and mm-hmm. certainly torture techniques can hide among children among college kids and soldiers, but as an organized form, it's pretty easy to break it apart, um, and we did this once before in the 1930s. We cleaned up policing in the United States in the 1940s and 50s, and um, no matter how bad things are uh, in police lockups today, they're nothing compared to what they were a hundred years ago. Um, so it, it's it, that part of it is 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 good. And and I think um and that's the upside is that these things are within our control to change and within the control of governments and local counties and all sorts of people can can make these changes happen. The other thing I guess I would say is that um the um how would I put it, the the reason I come to this is not so much because of my Shiite and Calvinist background, but because I understand that my um family um, I understand why people did what they did i mean i I know that my relatives were cruel, but I also have seen their family lives. you know mm-hmm. I mean I know that you can be an ordinary person and still do extraordinary things um the The element that is somewhat lost in all this um social science talk though is that um you know we as social scientists, we can talk about um the actual conditions um that um, produce certain things. So we can say that evil happens or people do violent things, put in more neutral language. People do violent things because either they have a cognitive failure, that is to say they're held by some ideology or their brain doesn't quite work the way it should, or conversely that that they are given incentives um, and that they're either um, paid to do it or uh, they – They have a sort of – they're rigged to do it psychologically, let's say um, mothers being cruel to defend their children or something, whatever Mm -hmm. that particular version is. But the important thing is that what this doesn't capture and which religion does capture and literature um, on torture does capture is something that social scientists can't study, which is what about the person who just really delights in um, cruelty to others Um, and what might be called indifferent cruelty? And and that's not just something that emerges out of bureaucracy. Um, that's a, a disposition and it can't really be studied. I mean the, mm-hmm. the classic example of this is, is the devil um, who is perfect cognitively and psychologically and yet delights indifferently in the evil that happens. And this model is rooted in um, a lot of religious thought. Mm-hmm. And certainly when you read Dostoevsky on terrorism or – um, Hannah Arendt on, on evil, um, on, on genocide. I mean, you you, you get an inkling of, of this much deeper sort of ontological um, dislike of mm-hmm. human beings, of human life, and a, a, a kind of willingness to stand apart from it and do cruelty to it. And I don't think a social scientist can grasp that through the tools that he has.
0: Right. You know, um, as I prepared to speak with you and even as we've been talking, um, some of the things we're talking about, and we haven't gone into much detail at all of what you know about torture methods, and it's very, very chilling. Um, And I just want to ask you to talk a little bit about how you uh, keep your humanity intact Uh, I mean, your book is not just a book. It's a massive tome (laughs) on torture, (laughs) right? I mean, that's so... It's true. How do you steep yourself in that and come back out of it?
1: Um, Well, I I would say that, first of all, the the preface of my book kind of spells it out. All the things I do, it's like 60% of my time is spent taking care of myself. I always know when I'm... um, Talking to someone who's a fellow walker on the dark side because the first question we have with for each other is what do you do to, to keep your sanity mm-hmm. um it's it's part of um this vocation that you spend a lot of time um focusing on um, you know understanding yourself um understanding why you do what the things you do and then kind of uh, pulling yourself out of yourself and learning humility um so yeah, I mean I guess. Uh, I mean I could give you a list of of things I do I I surf um and I I I travel um these things pull me out of myself um and keep get me focused on the beauty of the world I mean I think anybody who's studied as much as I have um the dark side of human beings comes back with a kind of new eye at at the things that we have um you know, sort of like a soldier Mm -hmm. coming back to a clean bed after a war, Mm. um, there's a sense that you realize how valuable um, the peace is, Um, you know, how my quiet little college where I teach at um, and how, you know, how wonderful it is that these children don't know Mm. what's out there and aren't exposed to it and don't have this shaping their lives. So, I mean, I think I really come to appreciate the beauty of ordinary human interaction. Um, I also, you know, I meditate. Um, I, um, you know, and meditation can take many forms. I mean, in terms of exercise or when you're being beaten up by a six-foot wave, you think, now there's humility. <laughs> there's only so much I can actually change in the world. Um, and, and you begin to understand that, you know, as an intellectual, there's only so much you can do. Um Uh, You can clarify things for people. You can provide information. You can show things. Um, And then, you know, there are, you know, there are, um, I guess what I would call, um, how would I call them, spiritual practices. Um, You know, there are things like, um, I'm I'm trying to think of of one. It's kind of hard to think of one one on the the spot, but there are certain things that I I try to do, like... um, when i'm When I'm working and I have this haunted feeling mm. uh, that i I step out of the house and I try not only to do routine things but also try to do one good thing for someone in the course of the day that has nothing to do with me, you mm. know like think prospectively about others um, these are all valuable things, but I will say undoubtedly the most important thing that helps me kind of focus is knowing your own story. Um, Whoever is attracted to uh, walking down the circles of Hades, there is no light in Hades. (laughs) Hmm. Um, You have to know why you went in there. And the only thing that lights your way is your heart. And if you don't know what the story is that's taking you in there, you will get lost. Um, It's a very disturbing place. It's very interesting to me that all the stories about people going into Hades are purposeful journeys. You know, hmm. there is a there's a there's a reason why someone goes. Orpheus goes down to find Eurydice, um, and on his way out, he he has to be very careful because he can lose the insight that he gained on the way in. Um, and that I think is not an uncommon experience. Um, hmm. He does lose it uh, because we we do. Um, kind of get focused on the journey and not on the purpose Um, so my story is that you know is as you've heard it I come from a certain background I have a unusual gift I can go into the dark side of things and I can come back with a a pretty good set of stories and insights to share with people wisdom stories if you want and
0: also that you are a storyteller I mean that you come out of those dark places and are able to put words around them that other people can hear
1: right and and that I think is yeah the storytelling part is is just being Iranian, um and my love of stories is growing as a child, um, and that really has helped a lot um in in just being able to to share um, to take pain and transform it into a story of meaning. Um, whereas, you know, the thing that we all really – that disturbs all of us really is meaningless pain.
0: Right. And, um, and to talk even about t- – t- talking about meaning in the middle of this confrontation we're having with um, this recent history of torture, just even that idea is striking.
1: Well, yeah. Well, but it's, it's the, the reverse. The obverse would be much more terrible. I mean violence pretty much forces a silence on people. When everyone sees a a violent – act the first reaction they have to it is well it's bad and it should stop mm-hmm. and then that's kind of where the brain ends <laughs> you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of moral torture talk if you want and but 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 the ability to turn around and confront not the torture talk, which just simply becomes become more familiar with your own moral sensibilities, mm-hmm. but to actually look at the practice, pay attention to it, understand its details, consider what would it take if I took a tool and I did this to such a person, what would its effects be? That's a pretty horrifying thing. Nobody really wants to go there. And yet to confront these sorts of practices, um, that is exactly what we need to do. I, I guess I have one other thing I would say um, so, so I guess what I, part of what I'm trying to say is that being able to talk about it, developing a vocabulary so that you're not kind of stymied and not a, a vocabulary that's just about your moral sensibilities, mm-hmm. what what I would call our national debate – Um, which you said is not a debate. And I agree. It's what I would call torture talk. Every society has a kind of economy of torture talk. And, you know, ours is peculiar to our culture. But actually looking at these practices, developing a vocabulary, talking about them, that's where meaning and thought and reflection really become hard and hard to get. And when you can get them, hard to preserve. Hmm. so that's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is you know, going back, I don't know if the photographs will be released um, or where we will be in this process. Mm-hmm. But I also would like to to say that the, um, the process by which we um, come to terms with our past doesn't necessarily have to involve a trial or – a pinning of blame or going through all the wicked details um and thinking through these questions um i think frankly um and this is a rather i guess biblical way of saying this but but since you asked the that's right that's right i mean i i i think i i mean I think whether you're Muslim or christian um or Jewish for that matter um i think You can start again and you can start again not just by rehashing the past, which then creates a a condition which we call political historicism, which Mm is I tell the political history that way. You tell the political history that way and then we spend all our lives fighting over who's got the right political history, right? We don't want to go there. The only way you can start over again is by – Asking for forgiveness, no matter where it was in the past, um, and you know, or apologizing, whatever you want to say, starting anew. And and the Bible actually, the ancients are actually much better at this than than the moderns. You know, our modern conception of starting again is well, we elect a new person, right. <laughs> or right. or we have a new policy, or we, you know, whatever that we narrative move is, on. Mm-hmm. we move on. Whatever that language is, and that's not what. you you get in the old political situations. If you really want to confront and repent about what you did, um, basically you kind of need two things. You need the whole nation to come together or somebody on behalf of the whole nation and not just to say, well, personally, I find this abhorrent, um, but it happened on my watch and therefore, whatever, I'm going to apologize. But what what you want to have is I on behalf of the American people or whatever um, people it is, I want to say that we are sorry uh, about this. Um, It reflects poorly on our values and so forth. But beyond that, it requires a new covenant. I mean, we know this from the Bible. It requires a promise not to do this again and to put into effect a series of steps that ensure that it will never happen again in the future. Mm -hmm. And here I think, you know, I look at the current political situation and I ask, why aren't we changing the Military Commissions Act so the definition of torture is back in conformity with international law? Why aren't we um, enforcing whistleblower laws or investigating how Army CID could have done a better job? Um, Why aren't we um, putting uh, a lot more money into acknowledging the trauma that we Inflicted on our own soldiers, so that people can understand what we did and what we asked of them was beyond what you should ask of any soldier um, why aren 't we um, uh, what would be another example? Oh changing the army field manual, which was changed during on interrogation, um, changing it back to the old standards. these are i think to my mind fairly straightforward things that could be done legislatively could have a a, a part in making a new covenant with the world about where we are.
0: Hmm. That's probably your last word, but I, I wanted to say, I mean, you did, talk, you did just talk about this. But I, I not only loved the last line of your book where you said, um, I mean, you end all of that with. Where then, with you coming out of it? Where then are my scotch, my accordion, my <laughs> friends, and my surfboard? But I was also very taken with the the dedication page you made to your your uh, teacher, your eighth grade geography teacher, Jean Rosashi, yeah, at community school in Tehran. And you wrote, "He taught me that remembering how others live." Knowing the proper names they give to places, people, and things, and being observant about how we live are basic skills for any life well lived it 's just beautiful
1: <laughs> thank you you know as a, as a scholar, I spend my whole life concentrating on things, and what Jean taught me was how to be attentive mm. to people and to things, and that 's a very different skill and 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 one that that I think um, as a scholar, we tend to discount. Um, but as somebody who works on violence um, and who has to regularly encounter the suffering of others, um, that was turned out to be one of the most important lessons I ever learned as a child.
0: Hmm.
1: But thank you, thank yeah. you. It was. Gene uh, died, as you know. I, I think it's in the
0: two thousand four.
1: Yeah, and mm-hmm. and he came out and saw me um, just before he died, and um about a year before and he wasn't going to see me and he came to my house and we went out and had uh lunch and he kept on asking me about my work and i never got to ask him about his stuff and you know um about what kind of tea tree he was i had all these questions i wanted to ask him and i i never could and then what happened was that um I he he wrote a letter after he met me to my old math teacher Ed Rosenberg and he said um I just saw Darius and you know I feel really um you know what, given the work that he's doing and how important it is I feel really like I didn't you know I feel I felt like I hadn't done anything important <laughs> and, and I was shocked um because you know what I was trying to convey to him was how much he had actually meant to me mm. um and so uh i felt i felt like um it was very i i struggled over that dedication i thought of all the people i could name it for and so forth. And i realized that no the, the most important thing i um i wanted to to capture was his gift of attentiveness because mm. i think that's one of such of the most fundamental skills that any human being can have
0: mm. Is there anything you want to circle back to or say um, that we didn't get to? I can't remember what I said. (laughs) Apparently we have two minutes. No. Two questions. Oh, sorry. I have two questions from behind the glass. All right. So I'm going to be quiet for a minute and then I'll come back to you.
1: Yes. Hello?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm just, I'm listening. Can you? Okay. Mhm-hmm hmm mhm-. I think i am gonna ask the last one, and just I think the other one we can maybe do online um just the question that we um <clears throat> and now that we know this has happened we we still tend to think of this as done by people, even if they were Americans over there somewhere. But as you pointed out earlier, um, they come back home. And yes. are we maybe adding to the questions you were posing a minute ago? I mean, are we are we setting up resources for helping them heal and make a transition
1: back? I would say that we are a little bit better than we were in Vietnam um, in terms of the knowledge we have of what it takes. Um, but... We are worse in terms of funding and support. Um the the way in which we're better is that after Vietnam we um we kind of left it to soldiers to come in and say, look, I have atrocity-related trauma right. or I, I'm so forth. And the average time it took them to come in the doors was about seven or eight years. Um, which I think is approximately ironically enough the average time it takes for a torture victim to walk in the doors of a of a torture uh, rehabilitation facility in Denmark, um, so mm-hmm. um, left to their own devices, people um, think that they can handle these issues. Um, what we learned in Vietnam was that it 's better always to responsabilize the families mm-hmm. so that if your your spouse or your parents or your children notice that you are behaving in ways that are not um, your characteristic behavior, to contact the appropriate people so that an intervention can happen. Because we know that the earlier we can do an intervention, the better. And the more the prospect is of a a healthy recovery. Um, This is something that I think has been done a bit better uh, with the psychologists in this war. On the other hand, I would say that the huge amount of pressure for um, uh, military uh, to serve in Iraq, um, the um, the the lack of funding sometimes for um, psychiatric support after a certain period of time, all these things, um, you know, in, in tight economic times and with a with a war going on, these are give us incentives to discount the pain that the psychological trauma that soldiers bring with them. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to trivialize the, the, the pain of victims, um, but, I mean, torture is also terrible for um, the violators right. as well as the right. violated. So uh, and, and it's, it's kind of difficult in the United States because we spend more time talking about what happens to our troops than what happens to the violated. But it's all pretty much the same is that they, they both suffer on either side of the stick. Mm-hmm um so yeah i mean i think i think we we can do more in terms of services um and we have to really confront the fact that um as has always been the case with militaries going back at least as far as world war 1 where um it's the incentive of the state is often to create a two class system where on the one hand um People who have privileged backgrounds get good therapy and they can pay for it. Right. Um, and people who are from not privileged backgrounds get the lousy six-month treatment and then sometimes not even that and are told that they have to reenlist or they have to go back or whatever the particular version is. Mm. Um, and that's, that's been a, a problem with military health care going back a long ways.
0: Okay. Well, I've kept you a long time. Um, I'm I'm really glad to know about you and your work, and I hope maybe our paths will cross in person one day. So I'm glad well, to know you're out there doing that. Well, thank you,
1: and and I hope I, uh, I thank you for your questions. They were very sensitive and, and thoughtful. Oh and, good. Um, and uh i yes i yes be in touch okay <laughs> i'll i'll be around
0: all right okay thank you so much and we'll all we'll right. let you know exactly what this is happening and when it's going to be on the air it'll be a few weeks as i say
1: well i'll be in australia by then oh, but, all right uh, well you can to, listen to, online
0: to, you can podcast it it's but, true yeah. was
1: there a, was there a question that you were going to send to me online as well or no, was that the only I, the question the
0: question was someone wanted to know more about captain Fishbach, but i just think um
1: Yeah, it's a bit too more detailed. Yeah, Yeah, and I can't remember too much right now. Yeah, I think we
0: can find other ways to explain that if it feels like it needs explanation. Sure. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye bye.